Hey everybody, this is Sean. And this is Kevin. And we have another episode of Shot by Shot ready to go. We have an old friend. He is part of the 12 Gauge Comics family and Studio Gaijin veteran. Kevin, I don't know why I'm talking about this. You know this man far better than I ever will. Who do we have as a guest? Yeah, Cully Hamner and I go way back. He's one of the first professionals, I think, that I met in the industry uh, back circa 1993-ish when I had opened up a comic book store and Cully was one of the first guys that ever came down and, and did a store signing for me. So we've, uh, in both being Alabama natives, uh, we kind of hit it off and have been friends ever since. So, and here with with, uh, with Brian and he being studio mates forever, it, it makes for a, a lot of interesting conversation. And in fact, even with Cully and I being good friends, I think he and Brian just sort of jumped back into the old studio coffee table type discussions and the sucker just rolls yeah there's a lot of camaraderie here we are spectators yeah. <laughs> yes and sometimes that's a good thing you just you know you, you throw the ball out and you, and you watch it roll Collie, as you may know is an incredibly accomplished penciler and he's provided art for green lantern for the ride but also mainly people know him from red with warren ellis but the guy just has a knack for grizzled action heroes. Yeah, he, he does that uh, better than anybody. Uh, his his action stuff's amazing. And look, you know, don't listen to us. Let's talk to him about it now. We have an amazing guest here today. Would you please introduce him? Tonight, uh, we have comics premier black artist, <laughs> Mr. Cully Hamner. What? <laughs> hey, how you doing? Good to be here. Kali, it's so great to have you. And so we have to ask before we start, what are you drinking tonight? Well, I'm, I'm lame. Uh, you know, I, I'm having some iced tea and I, I'm a little embarrassed to say I've not made myself a drink for this broadcast, but uh, that may change. You never know. I'll let you know if it does. All right. The night is young. The night is really young. I mean, you're probably sharing your taste with Brian. And Brian, are you still on the tea train? <laughs> Oh, I'm I'm deep on the uh, on the tea train tonight. Uh, I'm I'm drinking a incredibly expensive white tea, which um, I don't quite understand because what makes white tea awesome is how much it tastes like water. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm, and you have to I'm, pay a lot for that. I'm so glad to hear Brian lecturing us on white tea. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, and, uh, and, and before we go too much farther, uh, <laughs> the um, saying that uh, that Kelly Hamner is comics premier black artist. Oh, man. Is a, that's, that's kind of a joke uh, between Kelly and I. It's a longtime <laughs> private joke between the two of us. <laughs> and I say I say that because Kelly always gets the assignment to do black characters. <laughs> so... So well, he's comics premier artist of black characters. This this goes back a long way because my very first uh, regular kind of assignment in comics was a book called uh, uh, Green Lantern Mosaic. <clears throat> and Green Lantern Mosaic was the uh, Green Lantern book that starred the Jon Stewart character. And uh, for the first few years that I was in comics, you know, of course, there was no internet really to speak of at the time and no one really kind of knew what you looked like i would sit next to brian at shows 
and people would walk up to Brian and they would say, oh, you're Cully Hamner. I really enjoy your work on this book. It's so true to life. You know, and you can really tell a black artist is doing this book. And, <laughs> and Brian would always, sometimes Brian would just sort of sit there and roll with it. Like, yeah, well, thank you so much. You know, and sometimes he would go, actually, no, it's this white dude right here. This is, uh, this is Cully Hamner. Sometimes we would we would switch name tags just to mess with people. From that, from the fact that everybody thought that I was I was a black artist for for the first few years of my career, I don't know. Maybe that's parlayed into the fact I always get assigned books featuring like sort of non-white characters. But uh, I'm perfectly happy with uh, <laughs> with how it's kind of like played out because uh, you know I've done some great uh, characters. Yeah, and it's and it's really cool because I, I think uh, with Cully being like. The whitest guy I know. Uh, it's hey. actually it's it's actually kind of cool because you know he's he's just really incredibly uh, observant and incredibly uh, empathic in the uh, in the way that he views things. And I think rather than necessarily you know sort of bringing his ethnicity to the table, he brings uh, an insane amount of creativity. Well, thanks. I, I mean, I think. You know, not to get too deep into it. I mean, I don't know. You know, this is the direction this conversation is going to go. But if there's a motivational kind of an ethic to what I try to do. It's to try to bring humanity to everything. So I, to me, it's like mm. there's a set of commonalities with everyone. You know, we're all human beings. We all have the same kind of needs and the same things that we're going for. And there are cultural differences. But if you can try to find kind of connective sort of bridges that are underneath those things, you can kind of build on top of that and learn more about the, the kind of characters that you're, that you're trying to get across and try to connect with an audience. The things that oftentimes separate us tend to be nuanced. You know, the things that bring us together uh, tends to be the bigger thing, which is, which is that humanity, that thread of humanity. And I think th that's the thing that draws us to stories. Well, you know, I, it's funny. I, I, I credit the studio a lot for that because, you know, when I, uh, when I joined the studio, I mean, I was a couple of years out of my teens, really, and I'm joining up with a studio full of people from kind of all over the place in all different kinds of people, you know. Uh, we all had that sort of common thread that we love comics, we love storytelling, we wanted to learn from each other, we all respected each other. But, you know, uh, we didn't all have the same background. Uh, we weren't all the same color. We weren't all the same uh, anything, really. And, yeah. you know, for somebody like me, you know, white boy from Alabama, I just sort of ate it up. I was like, uh, this is this is amazing. You know, all these 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 guys here and one girl, <laughs> it, yeah. it, it, you know, it was just a really it was like a a, a buffet of experiences. Oh, yeah. yeah. And, and that's the cool thing is, uh, is I think. I think the stuff that happened at the drawing table was just as fascinating as the stuff that happened away from the drawing table. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and I think uh, a lot of the stuff that happened away from the drawing table, we managed to somehow bring it to the drawing table and into the work that we're doing. Yeah, definitely. Uh, Kali, one thing that you said, you try to find the empathy and the humanity, I find incredibly resonant. Because when I look at your work, the first thing that came to mind is that you make these violent, retired, or nearly retired veteran officers, <laughs> these killing machines, uh, you show like an interiority and vulnerability to them that you don't see. Like when I think of like Frank and the original ride, 
yeah, there's Frank and he's flexing his pistol and he kind of has this like Charles Bronson energy. But then my favorite panels are him falling asleep and getting grumpy. Or like when you look like at your most recent contribution to the ride, it's it's foo this like grizzled hardcore army sergeant crying, and that I, I think that's a very singular skill. And how do you go about kind of eliciting those emotions in these character archetypes that we don't expect to see those in? Well, I think that you know probably there was a very direct influence uh, in trying to capture that emotion on that last page because I was really late. And uh, I was probably crying when I drew it. Uh, so it was method. It was, yeah, it was, it was really method. I was really tired and I was crying. And, uh, you know, I, I probably just directly accessed that from my core in that moment while I was doing it. I wasn't really going to break your hands, Cully, if you didn't get paid for this. <laughs> I'm sorry I made you cry. I, I was going to break my own hands if I didn't get it done. But, uh, you know, I mean, it, it's funny you mentioned that because – I kind of – this is going to sound super pretentious, but it, it's true. I, in some ways, internalize what I'm working on like an actor would. You know, I, I, I did a lot of, of – I was kind of a pseudo-theater kid in, in high school, and uh, <clears throat> I, I wouldn't say it's method per se, but there is a certain amount of, of – I try to soak in kind of what I'm – you know what characters are doing and what what they're trying to say and what the writer's trying to say with those characters and i try to disappear into them a little bit and very often you know you will if you'll look at me drawing a page you'll you'll find that i am kind of reflecting what the characters are feeling sometimes on a page if you look at my face because i have a i have a mirror next to my desk so a lot of oh, times yeah. if I'm if I'm doing you know expressions and stuff but I'll catch sight of myself and if I'm doing an angry page I look angry. You know, if somebody's if somebody's frantically running from someone on a page I'm am going to be kind of a little wide-eyed and you know it's going to be reflective on me. Uh, if I'm doing an action scene very often in order to kind of figure out the the basic physicality of what's happening I will stand up and I will kind of motion myself through the I'll block the scene in a way. You know, and, and again, I mean, this is all stuff that Brian's familiar with because I'm sure I did it in front of him when I was in the studio. We, we all did. Oh, yeah. We, we would all well, do that. Well, that, that was one of the things that I thought was uh, cool um, that, you know, you're almost embarrassed by it when you're doing it in your own space. But, like, at the studio, we got to the point where it was so common for someone to, like, start making facial expressions or make weird hand gestures. And you realize, oh, okay, you know, or get up and act something out. And even when we uh, shoot reference for each other, uh, it was like you didn't need the face, but we always made the facial expressions, <laughs> you know, of, a, of a guy getting shot or something <clears throat> like that. You know? And I think I, that's that's one of the things that I that I appreciate about about what you do is like I, I think there's there's to a certain extent two types of artists. There are artists that are really good at drawing pictures. And then there are artists that are really good at drawing windows. And I've always thought the stuff that, that you excelled at was drawing windows, where when we, we would see a picture of this guy, it wouldn't be that great-looking drawing of a person. It would be a moment in that person's life. And you could see that this person was worried about stuff that was going to happen, but was also you know, sort of considering stuff that has happened. You know, 
And, you know, a part of that is just out of necessity because I'm never going to be that artist that draws an amazing, uh, I mean, I, you know, I'll occasionally pull off a really cool illustration or a good illustration, but I'm never going to be that consistently, uh, amazing guy that can draw. You know, we, we were in a studio with a guy like that, with Adam, Adam, <laughs> Adam is always going to pull off 99% of the time an amazing illustration and it yeah, was that's, actually, that's the weird thing is I, I think we all kind of went, oh, okay, so I'm not going to be the best artist in the world. That job yeah. is taken. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, I, I, I couldn't, I was in, in my way, I was kind of like, I'm not going to be the best artist in the studio. You know, it's like, I, I, uh, I was looking around and I was seeing everybody just kind of, and of course, you know, a lot of this is just my own neuroses or whatever, but you know, you're looking around at everybody going, well, geez, uh, he can do this and she can do that. And oh my God, you know, and, <clears throat> what am I good at? Like, like what, what am I going to be good at? And I, I basically just thought, you know, I am never going to be the guy that can pull off such a natural figure. I'm never going to be the guy that can be the, the can, can pull off a cover composition that is just unimpeachable. So maybe what I can do at is I can concentrate on narrative and I can concentrate on drafting and, and try to use those things to make you feel something. Um, and I also came into the studio with a background in caricature, which I have found to be very informative over the years when it comes to making characters visibly emote and, again, try to connect to you in that way. Yeah. And, and I think one, one of the things that's, uh, that's cool that, that you nail, um, and, and it's, it's, it's one of those things that I think, I think Luc Besson and Fellini are great at which is ugly people. <laughs> you know? Yeah. I mean, I mean, I, I oftentimes struggle with drawing an ugly person, but yeah, like <laughs> an, an ugly person has a much deeper story to tell. He doesn't have than a beautiful person. And, uh, and I think um, what's really cool is, is some of the ugly, just background characters that you do, you know, it's just like you, you see it and you go, what's up with that guy? Well, you know, that's that goes back to what Sean was saying about about, you know, lines on people's face. And, and it's almost like, you know, trying to etch a story into that face, even if you don't really know specifically what that story is. You're trying to imply that there is a story you want to talk about doing characters of, of diversity. I mean, I try very hard if I'm doing a crowd scene or or I have background characters to have to not just draw a bunch of white dudes in the background. I try to draw men. I try to draw women. I try to draw people, of, you know, various colors and you know, various ethnicity. And, and, you know, you try to populate it with, with people who are not necessarily realistic looking, but they're believable and they, they, they yeah. represent the diversity of, of whatever situation you're in. If you're in a mall, you look around and like, everybody's going to look kind of bizarre and weird and they don't all look the same. Yeah, but I'm but I'm I'm with Sean. I think you're you're the king of doing like these old guys with roadmaps on their faces. You know, I have thought about that description. You know, having a map of the world on your face. I I, I think that was a quote from a a character on uh, uh, the West Wing uh, that always kind of resonated with me. So you both are saying these profound things, and all I want to know, Kali, is what musicals and drama were you in in high school? I'm not gonna lie. <laughs> I'm super curious. 
Well, we have to understand that my school, I went to a, a, a rural school in Alabama. We had a terrible theater program. It was not much to speak of. It, it was, I didn't do any musicals for one thing. I'll tell you that. Um, but, you know, I mean, <laughs> not, I mean, you know, I, the, probably the, uh, and I hesitate to even bring this up because it's so cliche, but uh, the probably the pinnacle of it was I was a member of the uh, the speech team, and I went to the state finals with uh, doing a duet uh, acting thing with a, a, a friend of mine, and we did the Odd Couple, which you know everybody does the Odd Couple. It's you know it's the it's the most cliche thing you can think of, but we went to the state finals and I flubbed a line in the, uh, the competition and totally blew it and asked to start again, which was the wrong thing to do. One of the judges said to me afterwards, you know, if you, if you hadn't, if you had just kept on going and hadn't asked to stop, you would have won first place. You, got, ah. you, you two, you two would have had the whole thing. <clears throat> and then we would have gone to, we would have gone to like a national level, but yeah, I didn't I mean, it, it was an interest of mine. In the sense that I just, you know, I wanted to do something creative and something emotive and something expressive. And, you know, everything that I wanted to do was kind of a long shot. Like, you know, I wanted to do comics. I wanted to be an actor. I wanted to be uh, a writer. I wanted to be a singer. I wanted to be, you know, all these things. And and the most realistic thing for me was comics, believe it or not. So that was kind of what I ended up doing. Yeah, if you uh, if you went into acting, you would have only played like the redheaded best friend. So yeah, I would have been the neighbor. I would have been, you know, <laughs> I wouldn't have won my Oscar till I was seventy. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I uh, I would have had to have that map of the world on my face before I could have done anything. What what city do you look like, Frank? <laughs> <laughs> that's you know that's coming, Frank or, or Paul Moses or somebody yeah, like that. That's, Paul on, Moses, that's yeah. on the way. How inspired by were you by the 70s exploitation films that kind of modeled and preserved these characters through the decades to come? I mean, when I think of Frank, when I think of Paul, I think of Bronson, I think of Eastwood, I think of those characters. Did those leave a lasting impression for you at all? You know what? I I actually I was not a, a huge Eastwood fan until kind of the, the latter part of, of that period of his career. I was more a fan of people like Coppola. Um, I'm a huge uh, fan of the Godfather series. I even, I will even, to a certain degree, defend the third Godfather film, <laughs> even though I don't think it's a good film on its own. I think it works of, uh, as considered of a piece. Mm-hmm. But uh, I will yeah, agree I mean, with I, you completely. Yeah, that, I, I, that I, film is not as bad as people say it is. It's not as bad as people say it is, but it's also not good. It's no Irishman. Right. <laughs> the first film, the first film and the second film both work on their own. You can see either one and and without the other and I think you'll you'll get it. The third film you have to have seen the first two. Right. To eat the heifer to have any uh, any uh, um, you know resonance at all. Well, he was just ahead of his time because, you know, right. look at look at what the the movies are now. They're basically soap operas uh, with guys yeah, sure. and Sure. And, you know, it's funny because you talk about it being, you know, you talk about exploitation films. You have to remember that The Godfather, although now we consider it one of the greatest films of all time, it was an adaptation of a potboiler when it came out. It was not yeah. going It was not going to be high art. And mob films before that were 
were exploitation films. They were not they were not high art at all. And it's just interesting to me that much like a lot of filmmakers of his Coppola's generation, he took a genre that was not respected and turned it into something that kind of redefined cinema at the time. Yes, like the uh, Sergio uh, Leone Westerns. That or, you know, you got to give George Lucas his due. He took the Saturday morning serials that yeah. know, everybody yeah. kind of Lucas and Spielberg took that that whole thing and, and turned it into something, too. Yeah. Now, I'm, I'm going to go out on a limb here. And it's this is based entirely upon, like, probably over a thousand conversations we've had. Right. But I, I think I think the Cully guy comes from <laughs> the movie The Right Stuff. Hmm. Interesting. I do love that movie. Uh, but uh, but all of those guys that played those astronauts were these like sort of earnest guys, you know, and, and all the actors, not, not only the roles they had in, in that movie, but uh, but the actors themselves, they all eventually like became Cully men. That's an interesting point of view. I've, I've not really thought about that before, but uh, I, you know what? I would even widen it from that. And, and I'm going to say this with the caveat that I am known for at least a couple of female characters, like well-known for, you know, for doing at least a couple of female characters that have really resonated with women. I've got a lot of female fans, but there is a certain resonance with me with guy films, with like a, a film featuring a cast of mugs, you know, we, the right stuff. Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross is another good one. Dirty, I would even, I think I Dirty would, Dozen is in there. Dirty Dozen. Oh, well, I always have to stop for the Dirty Dozen if I'm surfing the channels. If I have, I have an appointment and the Dirty Dozen is on, that appointment is blown. Yeah, I have to stop for a little <laughs> while. You know, I mean, I would even to a certain degree put uh, The Godfather in that category with Pacino and with uh, uh, all the other all the other actors are are the the Corleones in that family are in that film. Uh, but yeah, the right stuff is actually I never really thought about it, but I do love that movie. I have seen it a lot, and much like uh, Band of Brothers, it's one of those movies where all the actors that are in that were nobodies when they did it, and kind of became stars later on tough guy actors you know you look at something like band of brothers and you can just start picking out faces oh there's tom hardy there's you know so and so there's there's damian lewis there, you know all these guys that have grown into these people with maps of the world on their face that's that's a thing that you're capable and, and i think all of us uh, as as <clears throat> illustrators and storytellers um we're able to record certain things that uh, that hum at a slightly different frequency below the notice of most, and when we play it back in our in our art, I think it uh, it elevates you know that thing, and, uh, and I think that thing that's that's in the right stuff and all the films that you mentioned, I think that's that's a thing that you're able to record with a very high fidelity, and when it's played back, it it makes people kind of notice, it makes people kind of kind of see that truth. Uh, how how and, uh, much do you think, how much do you think that people who do what we do, that what, what comes out in their work is reportage is, is them recording what they see. And uh, do you think all of it is, do you think some of it is, is it a percentage? Uh, I think, I, I think, uh, I think it's, it's probably 80% recordage and then 20% ego and then 20% guilt. <laughs> 
<laughs> Expand on the guilt part. I'm interested in that. <laughs> I think I think it's it's just it's just stuff that we we want to do, but we are just not like cool enough or strong enough or whatever to do. So it's like this is our opportunity to kind of like live it out, you know, um, you know, sort of on the uh, on the pages. Um, so it's just like you know. Uh, I, I think a lot of it is we're not good enough to do these things here, <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you know, and uh, and I think uh, I think that dovetails into ego very sort of comfortably. Yeah, you know, it's funny is like every now and then at a convention, I'll, I'll I'll some some guy will come up to me and go, I gotta ask, so uh, like where did you train, man? And I'm like, what do you mean? <laughs> Like that was like you you did you did martial arts right I mean like what what's your discipline where did you train I'm like I've never taken of <laughs> of any sort of fighting lesson in my entire life and they're like really because man your fight scenes and and I I I'm like I don't know it just it's just choreography to me it's it's dance I don't know I'm just trying to get to a result you know and and sometimes you just got to let go and just let let the fight tell you where to take it you know yeah, I mean I well, think you feel that way right Brian I mean. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, it's like all my lies are based on the truth. (laughs) Right. But all your truth is based on lies. Yes. (laughs) Right. I mean, the things that you do in your work that feel so truthful, you're making that shit up, man. Oh, hell yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Right. And and that's 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 the thing that uh, that that makes it uh, that makes it fun. And uh, I think I think you would have I would take it even further and say that all of your truth in your work is based on really informed lying. Yes. There's a lot, there's a lot of, you're lying when you work, you're lying, but it's based on experience. You make your lies seem truthful because they are, they're laced with your experience to make it feel truthful. Does that make any sense? Oh yeah. Well, and and, and I think the important part of that is getting to a place where you've researched it so much that you believe your own bullshit. And you don't have to think about it. Yeah. <laughs> you do not have to wow. think about it at all. I, didn't, I mean, it's mind-boggling that you guys are actually car salesmen with pencils. <laughs> that, that's, you know what? That is exactly true. That's exactly true. Yeah. <laughs> it, took, it took me 16 years. And one podcast to figure out the entire industry. Now I get it. You know what? Okay, there, there's, and I'm, I'm going to turn totally geeky on you for a second, but there's a Star Trek episode uh, of The Next Generation where, like, Captain Picard and Beverly Crusher spend an entire episode mentally linked with one another. Like, they, if they, if they get more than a few feet from each other, they start to get sick. So they have to get out of whatever jam that they're in, being able to read each other's minds. And there's one moment where... Beverly Crusher kind of like they don't know what to do. And she's like looking to Captain Picard to like, you know, tell her what to do. And she goes, you don't know what you're doing, do you? And he's like, what? What do you mean? And she's like, you never know what you're doing. Half the time you're just (laughs) making stuff up. And he just sort of shrugs like, yeah, yeah, that's how you command. That's how you that's how you do it. You have to look like you know what you're doing. And yeah, I think that with with selling cars and with with what we do, there's a certain amount of informed BS that you have to yeah. you have to put on the page because I mean God knows like you know going back to fight scenes or going back to anything it's it's all about doing the research and then forgetting about the research and letting the research kind of guide your unconscious 
That, that, yeah. That's very yeah. much. And I think you talk to any actor. I think you talk to a writer. You talk to a musician. You talk to a director. They're going to tell you the same thing. Yeah. He, he, both of us would fold immediately in a fight against, like, you know, sure. a 12-year-old girl. I'm weak. <laughs> I'm so weak. <laughs> But we will put together the coolest Batman fight you've ever seen. Right. And 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 I think um, another kind of part of this is I think people who draw pictures have a tendency to put everything in every image. You know where they're just trying to just completely expenditure just just everything out in and every drawing and every panel. And uh, and I think based on a lot of discussions that we have, it's. It's interesting how oftentimes when I look at your work, most of the panels are setups. They're not the panel. It's a setup panel. Well, I mean, another setup panel. One thing that I learned from you is that every panel is a setup panel, but every panel is also the panel, and it's also the payoff panel. Uh, And I believe that you used to refer to that as the ecosystem of comics, Mm -hmm. right? And what that means is that every panel is creating an echo, is creating an echo that's going to be felt in the next panel. But at the same time, it's paying off an echo that that was created in the previous panel. So every panel is almost doing three things at once. Yeah. And that always resonated with me because, you know, a lot of times when people talk to me about your work, and I think they do this with a lot of people's work, they're, you know, they're always kind of like, oh, how does he do this? This amazing thing that he that he, he pulled off here. And they're almost always where they look is they're looking at the surface stuff, the superficial stuff. You know, what kind of tools did you use? What colors are you using? That sort of thing. And I don't think that they get that only you can do what you do because only you have your state of mind and only you know why you're doing what you're doing. And there is a thought process behind it. There, there is an ethic behind it. But really, the reason that your comics can be felt so well is because you're feeling them while you're doing well, yeah. it. Yeah. And I, I think it's, it's, it's almost like the, the attitude of if, if you pull, you, you can't pull the battery out of a Ferrari and say, yeah, this is what makes that car move so fast. Right. You know, it's just like, well, you can't just pull that one thing out. And you know, that's the reason why the car goes so fast. It's, it's all yeah. these things that are, uh, that are connected to it. One of the things that always, would chase us into late night conversations is yeah. uh, is the whole the whole finessing the moment, you know. It's like um, setting that moment up, and when you set it up, it goes by without anyone noticing it, and then you you kind of like do a call, you know, sort of to it again, and maybe a few people will notice it. But then when you bring it back that third or fourth time, and yeah. it reveals, you know, sort of uh, so much more. It's like that to me is is better than the best drawing anyone could ever do is when yeah. you when you really craft that moment and a lot of the work that you do you you end up just holding back on that payoff and then just dropping it all at once well this is something you and I talk about all the time because we we always have that kind of age old dilemma and we we lament it when we when we talk about how much to actually draw you know, about how much do you want to, how much work do you want to actually put in to the image that is, you know, sort of technical or superficial and how much do you want to put into the composition, 
to the the facial expressions to the you know and and why are we worrying about backgrounds so much i mean you and i talk about this all the time like oh <laughs> God, we could we could we could be so much faster if we wouldn't just do all these backgrounds and and you know and 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 work so hard on those because you know you and I both can throw some backgrounds. Oh but, yeah, yeah, we we you know proven it. we proven it. But the, all the artists that we admire are people who have kind of they know how to they know how to kind of fake a background enough. I mean, they know how to do real backgrounds, but they've just gotten to the point where they don't have to like do all the notes in the symphony. They can just sort of imply a couple of them and, and you get it. And yeah, if, even if I look at, at the work that you're most lauded for and the work that of mine that gets most noticed, it's always the stuff that hits that sweet spot rather than, Oh my God, look at this amazing cityscape that Brian. Well, I think the, I think the problem is, is we're, we're, we're a couple of like, <laughs> Classical composers that like going to jazz clubs. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I and I, I I tend to express things in musical terms, and you hit the nail on the head. And when you and I talk, it's very jazz-like. I mean, you and I we play off each other like this a lot. And you're right. It's like you and I have very large visual vocabularies. We have a large amount of chops, but I think you and I would much rather just freeform it and you know you phrase your part and then i phrase my part and we hope it works you know to me oh, that's, yeah, that's I, a lot more fun a lot more interesting yeah i think <laughs> i think, I think the, the problem sometimes is a uh, is this the serving two masters you know i mean it's yeah. like we're trying to we're trying to serve uh serve the eyes but we're also trying to serve the heart and i, and I think i think storytelling is yeah. really something for the heart it's not necessarily for the eyes uh, but i think I think just draftsmanship and just good drawing, yeah, that serves the eyes, you know, and uh, and and a lot of times not, it's like, oh, I can't do both, you know. Right, but you know what? I mean, I do think that that's that's you know that's an arrow in your quiver, and you, and you do have to pull it out every now and then. To me, it's like, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna get close to you. I'm gonna get in your face. I'm gonna serve your emotions, and we're gonna talk, and we're gonna look at each other in the eye. Every now and then, I have to pull back. And show you what I'm capable of to keep you interested, you know. And that that's yeah. just that's the business, you know. It's 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 like uh, I think you and I have talked a lot about like over the years. Like for a long time, I would not tilt the camera in in a shot on a page until a little bit of action was going to happen. Like I would I would strategically keep the camera, you know, like completely square with whatever was going on in the shot. And then the minute that a little bit of action would happen, I would just tilt the camera. And the reason that I always kind of thought that way was, you know, you hear that story about about uh, 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 Harry Belafonte giving a concert, oh, sitting yeah. on on a stool, you know, and he's 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 does the whole concert, not moving and just kind of looking down at the floor and just and just concentrating on the emotion of the song. And then when the the concert reaches a crescendo, he all he does is he lifts his hand toward the spotlight and it just creates this thunderous feeling in the venue. And I've always felt like, you know, if you hold back on those things like breaking panel borders or tilting the camera or doing crazy angles until you want to make an impact, that impact is like magnified, like tenfold. Let me ask you a question. And this is, this is going to, because it's going to be kind of weird because we haven't discussed this much, but, um, but I think, I think as an artist, 
much like musicians sometimes, I, I think we have a tendency to learn solos. Even the work that you you end up doing ends up being a, a series of solos. Um, okay. and, and it's not until you get uh, a little bit of seasoning behind you that you're really capable of putting together an entire song. Yeah. You know, and, uh, and, and when, when I look through kind of your, um, your body of work, to me, the question was a turning point. Really? You know, I mean, yeah, I mean, all of the stuff is, is great. And it was like really cool because I, I knew you when you totally sucked, but there was a spark there. <laughs> you know? <laughs> you know? <laughs> it was just like, you know, I was just like, you know, sort of digging through the manure and went, oh, holy crap, there's some diamond in this. Yeah. Um, and, um, and unfortunately, it's, it's you, of, you have you had the advantage on me uh, on me on that one, because I, I never knew you when you sucked. I'm not sure you ever <laughs> did suck. But um, but it's it's kind of cool because the uh, the ride stuff in a sort of mosaic, you know, sort of even even down, I thought was like you kind of got onto something then. But the thing that really when you started doing the pages, you know, sort of for the uh, the question uh, backup stories, that seemed like, oh, okay, you're managing all of this stuff now. You've got it all in place, and it felt like it was of a work rather no, I than. I appreciate that. Oh man, I, that's a know, good solo. That's a good solo. That's a good solo. It was like reading through one of those. You know, sort of uh, issues was just like, oh man, that felt good. And then when when I sat down and just read one after the other after the other, it was like, okay, he's he's in control of his superpowers now. Well, I think it helps. I had a really good time working with uh, Greg on that book, Greg Rucka, who and he and I didn't did not really know each other before we did that book. I had worked with his wife, Jen Van Meter. Uh, on another project within the first issue, I think we just sort of clicked into each other and really kind of found that jazz that you, we're talking about with each other. And I appreciate you saying that. I look at the as the turning point as being something that took kind of years. I mean, like my early career, which was from, you know, started in 91 up through uh, maybe the first 10 years that I was doing this, where it was a series of kind of almosts, and there were, I would occasionally do something I sort of was into, but kind of nothing really kind of clicked. I do feel like when I got to Red with Warren, something started to happen. Like something else. Yeah. I started. Yeah. I started to figure out what what me was, you know, rather than, you know, because I mean, to a certain degree, I think I was trying to be everybody else in the studio for the first like 10 years or so. And I just didn't know. Yeah. Well, I think I, I think know where I was from a little hero chasing until you get your legs under you. I mean, it wasn't even necessarily hero chasing. It was just that I just didn't kind of know what I was doing. And everyone else around me seemed to know what they were doing. So I was trying to do what they were doing. And I just hit a point right around that time where I just was like, ah, you know, there were a lot of other things going on in my life. And, and I just kind of hit that point where I was like, screw it. I'm just going to be, I don't think I even consciously said it. I just think it was subconscious. I'm just going to do what I do. And maybe my career is over. Maybe it's not, but we'll, let's see how this, see how this works out. And red was 
the point where I think I started to kind of develop some singularity to what I do as opposed to just kind of yeah, looking like yeah. anybody else was doing. And, and really, by the time you got to the um, to the final issues of uh, of Red, there was there was a real kind of coming together. But uh, but but I, I got to tell you, man, the uh, the the question stuff that was just well, like I said, I, that that stuff had had a nice that was Cully in my opinion. Well, thanks, and I mean I do. I mean that's a high watermark. And, and what I, what I'm getting at is that I think what you're talking about started when I was doing Red, which was probably around you know 2002 or or, or so, 2003 when that came out to 2008, 2009, when the question started to come out. Yeah, yeah. There, there no, was no, a period where everything I did between red and the question was me getting to the question. And that was our conversation with Colleen Hamner to listen to the second part of this conversation. Loop around next week. Thanks for listening. Thanks everybody.